You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. My name is Alexandra Guerra, and I'm here with my co-host, wonderful Ross Kenyon. I was lovely last time. I'm wonderful this time. <laughs> what am I going to be next time? Witty. Witty. Okay. Snarky. Okay. No, I don't know. Well, sometimes. It depends on the day. <laughs> I try not to. Well, um, we have with us today Danielle Doggett, CEO of Sail Cargo and Seba. Danielle, thanks for for being here. Hi, thank you so much. So thankful to be here. Yeah, we've been trying to schedule for a while, but geography has conspired against us because you're in Costa Rica and traveling around, and we've been busy too. So finally, it has occurred. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really happy to yeah finally connect on that level. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, our pleasure. Well, we heard about you through the Black Sheep episode that we did about permaculture. And then we heard about this cool company who's building wooden ships to move artisanal products from Central America to markets in the United States. We're like, we got to do a show on that. That is, <laughs> that is far out. Is that an accurate take on what you're doing? Yeah, I guess you could say that. I definitely know the guys at Black Sheep, girls and guys there. They're an amazing group and they are... Uh... Yeah, some people we connect with here in Costa Rica quite a bit. And Seba, the ship we're building here in Costa Rica, is going to be the world's largest emission-free cargo ship when she's launched, hopefully at the end of 2021. And we will be doing cargo out of Central America and up to as far as Alaska and Canada. So, and then down the West Coast of the United States. Listener, you can say that you understand now why I was into an episode like this. It's visual. It's cool. I don't know anything else happening quite like this. So who exactly are your customers? How does sale cargo work? What's your broad vision of what you're trying to create? So we are trying to inspire the shipping industry to eliminate or work towards being carbon neutral. And we're not the biggest ship in the world. So she'll be 148 feet overall and capable of carrying the equivalent of up to 10 containers worth of cargo. So not actually shipping containers themselves. The cargo would be palletized. And that would be up to 250 tons of cargo. And we basically add value to our clients' products by eliminating the transportation carbon footprint that is associated with their transportation. So we're essentially repairing the final broken link in their otherwise sustainable supply chain. And we're going to be bringing the world's most important and impressive products to the world stage And we hope to do so completely emission-free in a way that is socially, environmentally, and financially viable. So some of our, well, just to reference, you guys had them, uh, mentioned them again, Black Sheep. I think they were episode 80. And they're going to be exporting organic turmeric oil. So it's an essential oil. And that's going to be a very large cargo that we move up to the port towns in the Seattle area. Cool. So you're doing this all through wind energy? Yes, technically she will be most of the time 100% wind powered. So we will have the traditional sails. So that's her primary engine is her three masts and the sails. And then what we call her auxiliary or backup engine will be the largest marine electric engine of its kind in the world. So it'll be a fully clean electric engine and will be storing power in the batteries when the ship is actually sailing. So when there's kind of too much wind, I guess you could say that basically equates to an excess of energy and we can capture that when we're sailing. So Seba will have two 
underwater turbines, which are the ship's propellers. And when we are sailing using the actual sails, we can collect or capture electric energy using those. So we'll be converting essentially wave and wind energy into stored electric energy, which we can use in the future whenever we want, meaning that SABA will be almost at all times powered by the wind. I think that is so cool. But you must lose some time on your delivery, though, if you're moving slower because you're allowing the propellers to move with the water to spin these and charge the battery, no? Yeah, so we will be able, they will be really a quite high-tech propellers, so they're called feathering pitch propellers, and we can adjust how much drag we want to have or have no drag. So if it's light wind conditions, we can basically eliminate that drag and continue sailing along. Um, now, that's not to say that she won't, that she'll be the fastest boat in the world, but the propellers won't cause excess drag uh, if we choose to put them in line with the way we're going. I'd like to get a sense of scale here. So when I think about what you're doing, part of the reason I get excited is because I have this sort of image of the Victorian days. I see clipper ships, you know, rounding the Cape. I think that's very cool. How big were those ships relative to Saba? What's a clipper ship? A clipper ship is a ship from that would typically trade tea and other spices from very long distances. So the clipper ships, especially the extreme clippers, were some of the fastest in the world. So you have the Cuddy Sark, some people have heard of. The Cuddy Sark, I think you can still visit. It's on the Thames. Uh, yes, you can. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so they, they're bigger than Saba. They are not quite twice the size, but they're very actually quite large boats. And so Saba will be about 150 feet overall, where they could be up to, that's, that's on the bigger side, but up to 300 feet. Ah, okay. Cool. That makes sense to me. Then that's a good place to sort of ground it. And then if you're carrying, I believe you said 150 tons. Is that, is that what you said Saba's carrying? Uh, 200, 250 Two, tons. 250 tons, my mistake. In Seattle here, we drive by the port to go to the airport all the time. So I see these giant Maersk ships. How many tons are they carrying? Well, I'm not sure exactly the tonnage that they can carry, but a comparison I can give is that Saba will be able to carry up to 10 containers worth. And some of the largest ships in the world can carry up to 22,000 containers. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So we're barely a, a drop of water in the ocean when it comes to sheer scale and size. It's like a little, it's a nice boutique artisanal option if you don't want to use them. Yeah, but it is, if you want to picture it, it's like a 350 square pallets, more or less, is what we can load. And, and so in terms of small producers, that it's a pretty considerable amount. And you keep saying that Saba will be. So is this ship still under design, under construction, or is it sailing now? She is currently under construction. If I were to just turn around, I can take a look. Uh, this past Friday, we hoisted the 23rd frame. So in total, she has 56 frames, and the framing is some of the most technical and difficult part. So we're about 41% done the framing, which is really exciting. We hope to get her in the water at the end of 2021. Cool. We can hear, uh, I've heard a couple saws go off. The birds, I know. <laughs> the birds we forgive just because that's just... <laughs> the guys that are working overtime. <laughs> working overtime. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Where do you find people who know how to work on tall ships and deliver stuff like this? Where do you Where do you find these people that would populate and work this vessel? Well, we have a really interesting crew, a very varied crew that have come from over 25 different nations. And so we're quite international despite being kind of a young project. We maintain having a 
around 50% of our workforce from Latin America, so we definitely want to provide job opportunities right here in our community. But in terms of bringing in skilled and experienced shipwrights, they're going to be coming from a lot of places such as Northern Europe, Canada, United States, and Australia, because that's the type of shipbuilding that we're doing. And yeah, we've had people come from, I don't know, many different places, far reaching as Denmark, Madagascar, and Australia. This is a pretty big project. I think it's wonderful, obviously, because you'll be providing a really good service with little to no carbon emissions, which is fantastic. How are you funding this? I mean, you've been working on this for how long? You still have until maybe the end of 2021. Can you tell us a little bit about your business model? Absolutely. So our business model is really the foundation of everything we're doing here. There's there's a lot of romance. There's a lot of storytelling, you know, with the jungle shipyard, the life at sea, tall ships. But really what makes it happen is the business model and saying, yes, we can turn a profit. Yes, we can ensure that our shareholders are happy. So we are funded by people investing in shares. They can purchase stock in the ship and own the company that represents the ship herself. And while we do offer, and we've, we've projected and we put a lot of effort into our numbers, we will offer a financial return on investment. We're also really focused on offering social and environmental returns as well. The whole project will cost about is estimated to cost $4.2 million US. And we're about 25% funded at this time. We do say that we're, I think it works out to around 36% of funding has been secured or allocated. And the difference there is that we count, so some of our crew, including myself, are compensated by, by getting shares in the company. So we can say that that funding is essentially secured or we don't need to go find it. We, we kind of skipped ahead about of this a little bit, Danielle, but how does one find oneself in Costa Rica building a wooden ship? How did, how did this happen by you to you? <laughs> what <laughs> route her. led you there? By her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, my personal story, I started sailing on the St. Lawrence 2, which is a nonprofit brigantine. It's a youth sail training camp up in Lake Ontario in Canada. And when I was 13, and it really just inspired me and I stuck with it. And that's been my career choice ever since. So yeah, I kind of ran away to sea, I guess you could say. But making the shift to working for not just sailing, for my own enjoyment and for working as an environmental company was definitely inspired by the company from the Netherlands, which is called Fair Transport and their ship Tres Hombres. So that's an engineless brigantine that does cargo from the Caribbean up to Europe every year. And just to give a sense of scale, we can take 350 tons and Tres Hombres can take about 35 tons. And yeah, they're just a very inspirational company. And I worked for them and saw a lot of things, great, really great inspirational things on how to, how to make things go really well. And then I saw things, well, maybe we can make this a bit more financially viable. And which basically resulted in a larger ship for our purpose at this time. Yeah. And just said, let's do it. <laughs> and I do want to, I do want to jump in and just give credit to my co-founder, Lynx Guimond. And Lynx is from Quebec and he has lived in Latin America for more than well over a decade and including right here in Costa Rica for about eight years. He's a figurehead carver. And when our initial friend group was looking around, trying to find a nice place to work, mainly not northern places in the winter, such as Canada or Germany. <laughs> he said, come to Costa Rica. Costa Rica has not only two oceans, 
it's one of the most peaceful countries in the world. It has no army. It's environmentally forward thinking. And it has all, not only all the wood and timbers that any shipbuilder could dream about, but they're properly protected. So you know that you're getting uh, morally conscious wood as well. And then you were also, we almost met up in person because you were in Haida Gwaii. That's how you say it, right? Yeah, Haida Gwaii. Haida Gwaii, um, which is what indigenous nation off the coast of British Columbia. That's an island group. And you were there checking out timber too, for similar reasons, I, I suppose. You're very concerned about how you're sourcing these materials and procuring them. We went up to Haida Gwaii, which is a essentially almost a sovereign nation. It feels like a sovereign nation an island group off of BC. It's a Haida people. And the reason we went all the way up there, it's halfway between Vancouver Island and Alaska. And the reason we went all the way from Costa Rica up to this little island group is because we want to find not only the highest quality wood, this is searching for the masts of our ship specifically, not only the highest quality wood, but also have environmental standards and social standards that we knew were the best quality in the world as well. So this will be the only wood not sourced in Costa Rica. Everything else is locally sourced here, in, right in our little country. But these masts are rena- world-renowned. British Columbia and the West Coast are world-renowned for some of the best spars. That's what they're called, mast material that you can get. So we definitely wanted to source it from there. And then one thing led to another, and we were introduced to the people from Providence, which is a tall ship, little tall ship up there. And uh, the North Pacific Timber Co., and they have one of the only Haida-owned logging companies in all of Canada, family-owned. So, yeah, we reached out to them. So you're doing something really different from what the rest of the maritime industry is doing. Can you tell us what is wrong with the existing shipping industry currently? And what are you trying to improve on? <laughs> there are so many things that could be improved with the shipping industry. <laughs> it's uh, almost shocking. So... Just to list off kind of quickly to give the scope, I like to talk about the cradle to grave or lifespan. If you want to look at the lifespan of a ship from today, modern shipping, to call it that, is uh, where is a ship born? So these giant Goliaths are born in uh, iron ore mines, the largest of which are in the Brazilian Amazon forest. So they begin with deforestation and mining and a lot of impact associated with that. And then moving forward, they go into their full lifespan, which creates a considerable amount of bioacoustic pollution. So they're extremely noisy. They're directly cited with um, disrupting whale communication, marine mammal communication. So that's the sound of their engines and their turbines and all these things that are creating noise can even cause mass strandings. Then they have invasive species. So these ships use ballast water to stabilize the actual ship itself. And so they'll be carrying alien species across the entire planet and dropping them off in other places. So that's invasive species. Is it Saiba? I imagine you probably just have like a blue water full keel, but is that not the case for, for these large shipping vessels? Are they, they're using some sort of ballast rather than using a keel or am I misunderstanding? Am I marine engineering here? No, you've hit the nail on the head. Yes. So we'll have a full ballast keel, which is a long, like long, deep keel. And then most of these cargo vessels, they do have a keel and they do have ballast, uh, but when they, they have dynamic stability as well. So when they take different cargoes of different weights, they'll take water as well just to help stabilize that. Uh, okay. 
Sorry, you, you were going through a nice litany of, of uh, grievances here. So please continue. <laughs> well, we I was just talking about oil spills, and I, I don't need to go too much into that. I think we all know the effects of oil spills at ocean marine areas. There's also air pollution, and which I could get into in depth. And accidents at sea are a really big deal as well. That's not only the loss of containers and the whole ship itself, but then also the fuel that's on board. And then moving, so that was the lifespan, that was the active life. And then moving into their cradle to grave, moving into the grave or end of life of these ships, it, almost all of them end up with shipbreaking on the beaches in, in Bangladesh, which the International Labour Organization has cited as one of the most dangerous jobs that any human does. Yeah, the shipping industry just doesn't really adhere to the same laws that the rest of the world seems to. Well, is it because... I imagine it's really difficult. So we see this with like at KO and IMO, so International Civil Aviation Organization, International Maritime Organization. Um, when you're traveling these international waters or international airs, how do you even set laws? I imagine that can be quite difficult. But I want to actually get into something that you said, which interests me more. I'm so selfish. I'm a selfish host. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> is you mentioned fuel use and air pollution. Now, a lot of people might not realize, but most ships have to run off of diesel, which is incredibly dirty. There's a lot of sulfur and other particulates that are generated when you burn diesel. But there has been some effort from the UN International Maritime Organization, as mentioned earlier, to limit this. You guys kind of got a free pass. Like, are you at all dealing with IMO or other regulators to prove that you are building something that will be completely emission-free? So we have not worked with the IMO yet to date. We, well, that's not, I'm not sure if that's entirely true. We did get to present twice at the COP23, I believe it was, in Germany. And so we were able to present in front of the United Nations upon invitation. But since then, we've not really worked directly with the IMO. That's something that will very likely happen once the ship is a little closer to being fully constructed. So their goal is to cut 50% of emissions by 2050 of shipping emissions. And I'm frankly not really sure if it's going to happen because, as you mentioned, they don't have the same regulatory body. There's no, they're out on the open ocean, so they don't have these kind of laws or, or police force or army or or there's no courts out on the sea you know and so while they do have to adhere to national laws within the 12 nautical mile range which is I think 14 miles 22 kilometers they have to adhere to laws within territorial territorial waters that kind of goes out the window in the middle of the ocean so how did those that's really cool you were able to present this at cop 23 what was that like and what was the reaction but it wasn't me personally, it was our representative from Costa Rica, Luis Perez, and he was able to go all the way to Germany and do that. We did offset his flight with by uh, planting trees, and it was an incredible experience to be invited to present there in such a formal stage, because at the time, two years ago, we had not even laid the keel of the ship, and I think that that speaks to the efforts of, that we've put into our business plan and, and making this a very solid business plan and saying, this is going to happen. You should start listening right now. And I don't know, for me and for the company, I think for Luis, I think it was just really, really an amazing experience. Yeah, it's all very exciting. It's nice that you have support. Seems like a project that is 
uh, appreciated down there. That's good to hear. One question I have with this is I read a book a while back called The Locavore's Dilemma, and it's very critical of local and regional food systems thinking about the actual LCAs of various products, what it might look like actually if we were to get food locally, with how would that affect the scarcity and availability and the seasonality of various food items, which I thought was was interesting, although I am not technical enough to weigh in on, on any one side of, of an issue like this. But one point in there was it was argued that transoceanic shipping for food products is actually a very small amount of their footprint by unit, primarily because the scale of transport is so large. In fact, in some cases, I think driving to the grocery store to, to buy that product and then consume it takes up more than that food unit of having moved across an ocean. So is that wrong? Is it missing something or is it right? And you're doing something else with the other types of benefits that come along with what Seba and Sail Cargo are doing? So to answer that, I'd like to open with an often quoted statistic. The 15 of the largest ships put out more pollutants, specifically nitrogen and sulfur oxide, than all of the world's cars combined. Another way to say that is that one single of the largest ships contributes as many of these specific emissions as 50 million cars. To put that in perspective, there are currently around 50,000 cargo ships at sea. So while I'm not too familiar with the particular book uh, or exact reference that you're making, I will say that this question has been posed to me on several occasions, often bringing in the aviation industry as comparison. So I will not say that the statement is untrue, that uh, driving can contribute less. However, I will say, or can contribute more, sorry, However, I will say that it is both a misleading and I think even slightly manipulative comparison or statement. By taking one single factor and comparing it without considering variables that are necessary to provide or produce the end result, I think we're left with a figure that does not represent the whole truth. And so I believe what the statement is saying, driving to the store emits more than crossing an ocean, refers to the economy of scale, as you said. And these ships can be longer than four football fields. They're massive. And therefore, they are capable of transporting large volumes of cargo, which does result in a low rate of emissions for food. But what does a statement emit or emissions even refer to? Uh, something that is, we did touch on earlier, but something that is not often understood is that cargo ships burn the least refined fuel available in the world. This results in black carbon and high sulfur emissions, which is associated with up to hundreds of thousands of premature deaths annually. So going back to the comparison of driving to the store, think about the fuel that you put into your car. Clear, it's free of impurities. You can see that. You can look at it. The fuel these ships use is thick and black. You can't see through it. At colder temperatures, say around 0 degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit, the viscosity increases. It gets even thicker. In some accounts, at these cold temperatures, you can even walk across the fuel. And it's actually just a byproduct of the oil industry. It's called bunker fuel, right? That's the term for Correct. this? Yeah. Bunker fuel. Yeah. So it's not even diesel. It's, it's heavy bunker fuel. It's the lowest grade that is used in the world. And another aspect that is not included in comparisons like this are the known unknowns. So the illegal and unrecorded actions. Shipping fleets operate out of sight and out of our minds. Did you realize that they also, as I mentioned, operate outside of territorial waters, so they're not governed the same as cars or other terrestrial forms of transportation. 
And outside of that range, national laws don't apply. The oceans don't have their own police force. There's a lot of illegal dumping and burning that goes on. And the sludge of impurities that has to be scraped away and cleaned out of the fuel tanks of these ships are often simply burned in barrels out on the open deck. And the International Maritime Organization has stated that they know it. Is that taken into consideration with the comparison of driving to the store? It'd be impossible to. <laughs> Jeez. Wow, that is a, a very thorough smackdown. Okay, so I don't know. I don't have a dog in that particular fight, so that very well could be the uh, appropriate retort. Well then, and I don't want to go too deep into this because it's a little bit of a different thing, but a final consideration or another consideration that's not included in these tidy little comparisons is that there are so many other factors. Untreated sewage is simply dumped straight overboard into the oceans. That's legal. Or the fact that modern slavery still exists on board the ships that move your goods. According to one inspection society, there was evidence of the crew drinking seawater for up to 10 days. That was just two years ago. So I don't know if people's lives have been considered because that's part of it. Should their lives be ignored or considered when speaking about emissions? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that ships and their global industry are unique beasts that we cannot simply compare equally to other forms of transportation. Totally. I love the way that you put it. Like that is just like a completely like trying to make comparisons from these different statistics or metrics is pretty dangerous because to say, oh, well, yeah, we will be emitting more by driving to the store to buy that apple or that good than is spent to get them there. Well, wait, so now we're just adding more emissions. Like it doesn't negate the fact Mm -hmm. that it was still shipped, that Apple was still shipped from New Zealand to New York City, or not even New York City because we're talking about driving to a grocery store or somewhere else, right? It was shipped to your grocery store. Then you're driving to your grocery store. So it only makes it mm-hmm. even worse. And then you have like, inner, so you gave really good statistics. And if you look at the total amount of emissions from international maritime, it's about 2.2% of our global emissions. That's significant. It's about the same for aviation. It's pretty significant. So I'm not getting it against you, Ross. Like, I, I know you read this book. You're like <laughs> co-hosting a <laughs> podcast, trying to start cool conversations. But those stats in general, when I read them or hear them, make me also very perturbed because it's such a small view of it. And it's like, oh, okay, because this thing is worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. That other bad thing is not so bad. But then they totally diminish and reduce the impact of that other bad thing by making it super vague and making and just yeah. it's very reductionist. And I wish we would stop doing that in general with everything. Well, and my other kind of comment about that is people say that, well, you know, shipping is so efficient compared to things like aviation. But I say, look at look at the fuel, just like we did with your car. Look at the fuel. So they're so massive, the shipping industry. If they decided to improve their fuel quality, think of the emissions that could be cut. And that's what the IMO is trying to work towards. Yeah. Maybe we should stay away from the IMO and their 2050 goals because I just haven't I haven't looked in the last maybe three months because we've been in Denver with uh, this program and like all sense of what's going on in the world has been lost on me. But I was following them closely for a while along with ICAO and I don't understand what at all their plan is. And it's almost 2020 and to try and slash your emissions mm-hmm. in an industry that's only growing at a compounding rate of 6%, I don't understand how you would do it. So, No, it's, well, I mean, they could do it if they just, I guess, and I don't know the statistics on it, but used cleaner fuel or just upgraded to diesel. Diesel itself would be a huge upgrade. 
I don't want to speak too deeply about that because yeah, that's not my, it's not my place, I guess. <laughs> I'm a sailor. Yeah. I'm amazed that you've made a whole career out of this. This is what a, what a crazy trip that you've had. Uh, okay. Well, I, I feel thoroughly uh, eviscerated. So <laughs> not you, Ross. I'm going to lick my wound. I'm like, I read a thing. I thought it was kind of interesting. What do you guys think? 10 minutes of yeah. detailed <laughs> destruction. Well, <laughs> but they, there are interesting points. So I'm not somebody who just says only eat local, right? Of course I wouldn't be. I mean, I want to do long, long range transportation. I mean, eating local is great. I support that 100%. There's so much to be said about that. But as someone who's from Canada, am I going to give up coffee, chocolate, rum, vanilla, Never the rum. Never coconut the rum. oil? No. <laughs> <laughs> so then we kind of say we have needs and then we have wants that are basically almost needs, coffee. <laughs> so how are we going to move them? Yeah. Well, fair enough. Well, I guess, what is the big vision of what you're trying to do with sail cargo? Do you imagine that international shipping is going to go electric or do you think even getting them to upgrade from bunker fuel to diesel is a big enough leap that electric is unforeseeably far in the future? Do you think that like what you're doing uh, with a ship of this size, are you? is this a sort of proof of concept and then maybe the second vessel will be much longer? Or are you headed towards a renaissance of the clipper ship days? Is that going to come around? Well, I think I think that there are so many opportunities right now, and it does feel a little bit like a technology race. I won't say arms race, but it feels a little bit like a technology race at this moment because there are so many different options from electric, cleaner fuel, and solar, wind, so many options on how we can improve, even going into autonomous shipping, so not, not having people on board. It's, it's just a really rapidly expanding and changing industry and hydrogen fuels. I honestly don't really know. Our, our goal is to inspire the shipping industry to change. And I've personally advised and been contacted about much larger, more modern projects. And I think that electric does have a spot there. I think that wind power, more modern versions of the sales we see today do have a place there. And I think the immediate change would be just put cleaner fuel in your boats, guys. <laughs> uh, like that's that's a very possible one, very attainable. It's expensive for them, but it's possible. And then in the future, I don't, I don't really know. How much more expensive is it, and how thin are the margins for shipping right now? Do you have any any sense of that? I, I wouldn't be able to speak to improving the fuel quality or choosing to put in better fuel, but I can give a bit of a range. Or I can, what I could do is share a bit about how much it will be to ship emission free with us, which is, so the, the shipping industry, which what we've looked into can be as cheap as one cent per ton per mile to ship goods. That's bottom. And then it can go as high as $1.60 per ton per mile. That's more like niche things and inter-island cargo and things like that. And for us, it'll be 20 cents per ton mile. So fairly affordable at this rate, but I think that it could be, it's just, you know, when technologies get to a place where they're actually more accessible and they've emerged and grown into something that can be replicated, then the price goes down. Yeah. You need to achieve the economies of scale or, or get that learning curve. It seems to, this is really cool to get that range of one cent to 160 cents per ton mile. And then you guys are fairly low on the 20 cents per ton mile. And this is just at the beginning. So tons of room to improve, but it, in my mind, it's almost like apples and oranges. And tell me if I'm wrong. 
are your delivery times different? Like, is there a limit to the types of goods that you can transport because of what I'm assuming and totally based off of assumption, really nothing, that (laughs) it's going to take longer for you to deliver goods than a typical ship? Yeah, so we definitely will have restrictions based on size and our type of vessel. And I'm hesitant to say that in the end, we will be a slower delivery time door to door, but we will definitely have a slower average speed. Comparably, maybe 20 knots is what some of these large vessels cruise at, and we'll be probably cruising at 12 knots. So definitely a difference in speed there. But the place where we may be able to make up more time is in the ports, in the logistics end of that, because the containerization of cargo has, has kind of gotten out of control and the ports are now the bottleneck. So you'll have vessels waiting in ports for up to two weeks before they can unload because they are dependent on the cranes in these ports to unload the containers, whereas we will be self-sufficient. We can unload either using the cranes in the port or using our own uh, ship's rigging. So while we will, I definitely will say we'll be slower at this point, I kind of have my fingers crossed that maybe we can tie or I don't know if we'll actually beat their door-to-door delivery times for large ships like that. Well, I'm rooting for you. I'm cheering for you on the sidelines. <laughs> we'll see. On the docks. <laughs> For, you know, when you were, when Ross asked you that question of like, where do you see this headed? And you're like, I'm not really sure. Maybe autonomous. I just have to say it. Like, have you guys seen that episode of Silicon Valley oh, yeah. <laughs> where Jared gets stuck in an autonomous car and then stuck on a... Like a seastead? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, no, I haven't seen that. <laughs> oh, you have to see it. It's Danielle. It's it's priceless. That's the, that's the future. <laughs> I'd like to make an unsolicited business suggestion. Oh, me too. Wait, <laughs> go. <laughs> you, I think I know what you're going to say. One, two, three. <laughs> Media <cruises>. company. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I've seen some of your content already, and this is so visual. I, I, I'm sure you know, I just saw this the other day, Sailing La Vagabond, the Australian couple. They, mm-hmm. They're taking Greta back across the Atlantic. I don't know. I think what you're doing is so visual and unique and cool. I'm not sure what you have planned for adding a, a media arm to what you're doing, but I think you could be quite successful at it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Ross, I thought you were going to say monetization of the decarbonization. Oh, yeah. We, we, we could talk about that too. Let's do that offline. We'll, we'll have to get some methodology. But yeah, no. Well, Nori uh, only does carbon removal, so... But the trees that are used to build the Ooh, ship are stored. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, done. And we also say that we uh, want to that? take away business from the existing industry. So rather than create a niche market, we're taking away business from those cargo ships. So we we uh, take the liberty of saying that we'll offset those emissions. Mm. Yeah, as, as a it's a bit of a reach, but I think it's something to think about. <laughs> so we have YouTube, we have Instagram, we're on all those social media channels with at Seal Cargo. But I think once the ship is actually sailing, a proper documentary might be in order. It's going to be a really amazing first trip. Ooh. Yeah, I, w- I would watch that. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of <laughs> lot of potential there for sure. Are okay. you sure you wouldn't quit and just go on sabbatical and be like, oh, hold on, guys, I'm going on yeah, this trip? Yeah, do you need a, a comms <laughs> expert? Uh... Ross yes. is obsessed with... <laughs> yes, we do. And we're, you know we're going to be sailing up to Port Townsend. Oh, we, we would love to meet the crew and we could probably even do a, a follow-up episode on this. This is so wild. We have to do it. That'd be awesome, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Alessandra, what's your, uh, what's, what was yours that you screwed up? <laughs> that was fun. I'm yeah. actually glad that, that you game. said at the same time. Yeah. Uh, cruise lines. So luxury cruises that are only wind powered. I think you could find a very niche market, a very 
affluent individuals who are very supportive of climate action, particularly here in this area of Seattle, who would pay a good dollar for going on a completely emission-free cruise up to Alaska. Undoubtedly, because the other thing we have is that we are silent. Sailing ships and electric engines, especially with our enlarged propellers, which reduce significantly the noise associated, are silent. So think about up in that neck of the woods, whale watching, interacting with those marine mammals and not disturbing them, getting much closer. So I worked for an amazing company in Northern Iceland called North Sailing, and that's what they do, sustainable, respectful whale watching. And you do these long cruises up to Greenland, which I had the amazing opportunity to do. And with this electric engine, that's where we got the prototype idea from. So you just do not disturb the wildlife. It's incredible. So you have better whale watching experiences. I will never yeah. sail the seas again until I can sail a ship like that. <laughs> she was just lost in whimsy for a second there. I, I was. I was imagining. <laughs> I grew up in the water, but like I grew up with the Maitio Papo like taking us on the boat every Sunday to the intercoastal, but it was like one of those speedboats. And if you sat in the back, you could always just breathe in the fumes of the engines. So. <laughs> not not nearly as, as elegant as something like this. No. <laughs> But it was fun, though. Yeah, I was always sunburned, and I was a very happy child. I would jump from, like, the top of the fishing towers from uh, the boat and, like, clear the side of the boat into the water, and then we would swim up to the shore and come around in circles all day long. Like, five of us would do that. Well, Danielle, if someone wants to support what you're doing, get involved, or just uh, absorb your content. Also, if you're listening right now, there will definitely be pictures. I will link to those so you can see exactly what we're talking about. But how can someone keep up with you and what you're doing? So I definitely say check out our website, sailcargo.org. And our Instagram is one of our most active social media, also at sailcargo. But really almost any media platform, Facebook and YouTube, And you can also just email me directly if you are considering becoming a fellow owner of this ship. You can email me at uh, info at sailcargo.org. The idea of of buying a share in a a wooden sailing ship just seems like, yeah, 19th century London coffee shop, (laughs) waiting for it to come into port and see if you lost all your money or not. I don't know. I, I love that it's both looking to the past and the future simultaneously. Uh, you guys are weird in the best kind of way. I think it's... Uh, <laughs> he says that good. with a lot of admiration. <laughs> yeah, no, I I do. It's strange. Yeah, well, Love it. I know that a lot of our investors, our investors do come from around the world, but a lot of them are from the West Coast of the Americas. And I know that they're excited about seeing their ship come into port with coffee, you know, fresh from the farms here. And I think it's going to be a real full sensory experience. Great. Well, let's stay in touch. Links in the show notes, too, if you'd like to follow up on any of those platforms, websites, emails, all of that. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Danielle. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both so much. Really appreciated the opportunity. It was our pleasure. How could we not? Uh, it was just such a such a unique pitch, a unique introduction. I had to, had to say yes to this one. So thanks for finally scheduling with us that we could do it. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Tell your friends. This is a cool episode all about sailing, sailing vessels, uh, international trade. What's not to like? Send it to someone who might, might like something like this today. And thank you so much for listening.